I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me to the New Testament book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning as we are continuing a verse-by-verse -verse sermon series and a look at the book of Acts, and we're actually studying the very first Christian church. We were there at the beginning in, in, uh, in the book of Acts. We were there when Jesus was crucified. This is right before Acts started. And when the apostles were told to go and spread the gospel all over the world, and we were there when Jesus ascended back up into heaven, we were there when the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, we were there when, when Peter told the entire crowd what was just happening, what happened at Pentecost, and we were there when 3,000 people joined the church on day one. Can you imagine a church growing by 3,000 people in one day? Somebody needs to make uh, a, some extra coffee and we need to bring some more donuts because that's a lot of people right away, right? Now we come to chapter 3 and we see what happens next right after. This, this church is 3,000 people strong. Now, you have to remember something. Everything that has gone on so far in the book of Acts has been in the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to stay in the city of Jerusalem for a little bit. And we're actually going to be in this story for a couple of weeks. And in order, I think, to fully grasp chapter 3, we need to go back into the Gospels and actually look at the ministry of Jesus. We're going to look at a couple of specific points in the ministry of Christ because that's going to be relevant now in chapter 3. When Jesus was active in his ministry, it took more than the words of Christ to prove to other people that he was indeed the Messiah. I want you to see, Jesus performed miracles, and he performed miracles often for that reason. I'm in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse number 30, it reads like this. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. Because these are written so that you may continue to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. John chapter 2, verse number 23, it reads like this. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in Him. The one thing about miracles especially the miracles that Jesus did during his ministry, is that everyone knew about him. Especially those miracles that Jesus did amongst large crowds, people knew about it. Nowadays, billions of people know about the miracles of Jesus because they were written down. And throughout time, we've read about the miracles of Jesus because it's been passed down and it's been passed down. Then they would just spread. If you saw a miracle of Jesus, wouldn't it be fair to say you're probably going to go and tell somebody and somebody is going to tell somebody? That's what happened. Now, let me tell you something. There's a good amount of miracles that are recorded in the Bible. But John tells us, there are so many more miracles. There's so much about Jesus that didn't get written down because it would take uh, all the books in the world. It would fill up that much paper to actually record everything that Jesus did. His miracles were done for a reason, and that is 
to let others know, to prove to others that he is who he says he is. That's a big deal, right? But I want you to see what Jesus tells the apostles before he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1. I'm in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. Jesus, Jesus says this, but you will receive power. Power, you will receive it. He's talking to the apostles when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the book of Matthew, chapter 10, Matthew writes this, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them the authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Jesus has now told his apostles that they have the power for physical miracles that has been handed off from Jesus to his apostles. We're not going to go into the idea of, of who has those miracle powers now. That's for a different sermon. But I want you to know, as we sit in Acts chapter 3, the power that Jesus had to perform physical miracles, that has been handed off and given to the apostles. That's going to be important to know as we move through our text this morning. Let me ask you this. If one of the apostles were to have come up to you and they're doing what Jesus has told them to do, they're coming up and they're preaching, they're teaching about Jesus, one of the first questions that I think that people would ask is, you know, why should I listen to you? Or if you're one of the apostles and Jesus told you to go and teach, that would be a question that I would ask. Jesus, why would people listen to me? What makes me any different? Why should they trust me? How do they know that you actually sent me? If I start talking, aren't I just like everyone else who comes around the city and starts to talk? This is the same issue that Jesus had during his ministry. He could talk, but his miracles are what would connect people to, okay, this is God. He is different. This is the real thing. Before the wedding in Cana, when Jesus turned the water into wine, he was a great speaker that would, that would go and, and, and would talk to other people. But when he started performing miracles, now you are actually seeing things happen that shouldn't happen. You are seeing God do things that only God can do. Jesus performed miracles so that people would know exactly who he was. Even one of the highest ranking Pharisees, a man named Nicodemus, by his nature as a Pharisee, as a member of a group called the Sanhedrin, we'll go into that someday too. This is a high-ranking religious official, okay? And he even recognizes Jesus' miracles. Now, he's in a position to where the entire group of Pharisees should be doing everything they can to discredit Jesus' miracles, to discredit his authority, to discredit his words. Nicodemus says this in John chapter 3, verse number 1. He says, well, the, uh, John writes, there's a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader, who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to Jesus. Rabbi, he said, 
We all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So even the religious leaders of the day recognize there's something different about Jesus. Recognize his miracles as being authoritative. The miracles are performed so we know who Jesus is. Because as humans, we, we question everything, right? We have seen magicians. We know that there's guys who are good at sleight of hand. In our world, see, they didn't have YouTube back then, surprisingly enough. You know, they're just, yeah, they, they weren't watching YouTube. But they also weren't watching edited video that can make cars jump and land uh, on their wheels. They didn't watch, you know, TV that had just anything could happen and it didn't surprise you as much. Anything would be surprising in their day and age. There were satanic beings who, through them, things would happen that would just be like, you know, this isn't normal. This isn't supposed to happen. But nobody, I mean, nobody had ever gone into the grave without breath and then walked out fully human, full body three days later. Nobody had ever touched the eyes of a blind man and made that man able now to see for the very first time. Nobody had ever, ever done that. As a matter of fact, no one can do that today. Jesus could. And Jesus did. That's what he did to show others who he was. And now we see the apostles starting to begin their work to go out and spread this message. The first thing that is recorded in the book of Acts, after the 3,000 people come to the church, the very first thing that we see is Peter and John going to the temple for prayer. One thing that I want to make sure that we understand, and I think this is very important, Peter and John are technically now Christians. 3,000 people that came to the church are technically now Christians. They're following Christ, but they have grown up in a Jewish culture. They still value what they have done their entire life. And I don't want you to say that it's wrong for them to do it, because when they're going to the temple, they're praying to God. They're praying to God Almighty there. This is something that they do. This is something that they did. So this is where they are going at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I want to set this scene for a moment. The temple is the center of Jerusalem. Everyone would go there. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would be there numerous times a day. If you didn't live in Jerusalem, you would come a few times a year to Jerusalem to spend time at the temple. The temple is inside this wall. And this wall has different gates. Um, not so much like a gate of your chain link fence, not like that. It's like a, a big door that would open, okay? And, and these doors would typically be decorated. This particular gate was decorated in Corinthian gold. It was decorated in silver. There was engravers that, that may have engraved like olive leaves on here, uh, national symbols on here. And this gate would be, would be open when people would come in. It would be closed at some times, but the gate is there and people would come to this gate. This gate was called Beautiful. That's its name. Not, 
only because it's probably beautiful, but that's what they called it. They called it the gate beautiful or the beautiful gate that people would come into. This also was a very popular place because so many people would come in and out. Remember, we're doing prayer three times a day, right? In the original translation, you might, you, might start, you might see in your Bible where it would say the ninth hour or the sixth hour. In Jewish custom, the day started at, um, at 6 a.m. You would have prayers at hour three, which is nine. You would have uh, prayers at hour six, which is noon. And you would have prayers at hour nine, which is three. So that kind of comes into our culture. We're talking about the 3 p.m. prayers that John and Peter are going to the temple for, okay? I'm going to start us. We are in Acts chapter 3, verse number 1. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It reads like this. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the... As they approached the temple, a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate, so that he could beg from people going into the temple. I know everyone here has probably gotten off the freeway at an intersection and there's been somebody up by that stoplight and they're holding onto a cardboard sign asking for money. And a lot of us have probably asked ourselves, I wonder how much money he makes in an hour. I wonder how much money he gets in a day. Have you ever asked yourself that? See, here's the thing. You're only there for about 45 seconds. And then your light turns green and you move on. And then there's another group of cars that come and stop. And they're going to wonder the same exact thing. This is the same concept that's going on in Jerusalem. Because there's so many people, three times a day, that come into that gate. They come through there to go into the temple. What a great place to stop and beg for money. Right? What a great place. That happens often. Now, for a couple of reasons. One, there's a lot of people that are going to come through this gate. There's a lot of people that are going to go through that intersection. But two, when people are on their way to church, this is actually a proven statistic, is that they're actually a little bit more generous. I'm on my way to church. I'm going to give, I know I'm going to give money to the church while I'm here. And here's a guy that is begging for money. Okay, yeah, I can give a couple of coins. He is not the only beggar at this gate, I promise you. He's the one that we're going to focus on today. There are others here. And he's not the only beggar that is there every single day. There are others who are here. It is common for beggars to be brought here. And when you go into the temple every day, if you go three times a day, you're seeing beggars. You know how, and, and let's just be honest, you know how uncomfortable it is when you pull up to the intersection, the guy's got the sign right there? You know how uncomfortable that is? Imagine that three times a day when you go to church. Three times a day. That's exactly what's going on. Chapter 4 of Acts tells us that this man is 40 years old. I think that's important. Because this particular day, he would have woken up, he would have waited for a family member to come into his room and put some food near him so that he can eat. Remember, he is lame. He's been lame from birth. His feet don't work. He can't walk. He would have waited for one of his friends to pick up his cot, maybe a couple of people to pick him up, 
take him to the gate called Beautiful. They wanted to make sure that they got him there by 8.30 because the morning prayers are at 9, right? And he needs to be there as people start coming in for those 9 a.m. prayers. People start going to the temple. There's so many people. But imagine this. There's so many people that are coming in three times a day that they won't even look at him. They won't look him in the eye. They don't talk to him. They don't want to touch him. He's an outcast. He's a cripple. He's a problem. He's a nuisance. This man is annoying and he is unwanted. And we see Peter and John and they're on their way into the temple. They've done this before. This isn't their first time. They're going in for afternoon prayers. And here's this beggar. He is amongst other people on the ground from so that society has thrown out. He is as close to the ground as you could get, literally begging for money. This man is in the dirt. He is at eye level with feet. He's had a hard life. He didn't ask for this. He didn't fall off a ladder and, and break his back and now he's crippled. No, that didn't happen. He didn't do anything wrong to end up in this position. He has been in this position his entire life. He can't get home by himself. He can't prepare food by himself. He can't even financially support himself. His life is so bad that his parents or somebody in his house, the best that they can do for him is pick him up, take him to a gate, drop him off. Say, hang here for the day. He's got no money. He's got no food, he's got no legs, he's got no voice, he's got no identity, he's got no hope. There is absolutely nothing that he can do in his position to make his life better. Nothing that he could do. This is literally the moment in life when you say things can't get any worse. The only thing worse than this is death and some days that's what you would prefer. That's where this man is right now. So there's so many people coming into the temple and I'm talking a lot of people coming in through this gate. He's on the ground. He is a professional we're going to talk about that in a minute. And the one thing that you're doing is you're, dart, you're darting around. Your eyes are darting, darting around. They're looking at people. You're trying to make eye contact with different people because you only get a split second to say alms for the poor. You only get that split second to say, hey, can you help me out a little bit? And you know, just by looking at some people, you know if they're going to give to you or not. And if you recognize somebody that's not going to give to you, you're not going to waste time making eye contact with them. You're going to dart to the next person. So maybe it's somebody over here. It's a sales strategy. Don't spend your time on somebody that's not going to give you any money, right? Go and move on. And that's exactly what is happening here. His eyes are darting away. Maybe he gets, maybe he gets somebody in his eye contact and they say the same thing that we say to the Girl Scouts. Have you ever said this to the Girl Scouts? You go into the store, they're like, hey, would you like to buy, buy some cookies and... You say this, mm, maybe on the way out. Have you ever said that? You ever heard anyone say that? You know what, maybe if I get some, maybe if I have some extra coins, maybe on the, maybe on the way out. That's what people are telling him. 
right? And then he spots the apostles. I'm in Acts chapter 3, verse number 5. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us! And the lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. I'm going to stop right there for just a minute. At one point, his eyes are on Peter and John, and he asks for money. He asks for alms. Something in my cup, please. But his attention is not fully on them. Now his eyes are darting around again. He's looking at other people. He, he's looking for an opportunity. Because, see, if he gives all of his attention to these two men, he loses an opportunity to make contact with somebody else to give him some money. So he's looking around. And Peter and John, they speak sternly to him. And they say, look at us right here. I want your attention right here. Because they want his undivided attention. They don't want him bouncing his eyes around to other people right now. Because they have something for him. And we know that other people might have money. They say, look at us. I want your attention. I wonder if God has ever done that with you and me. I wonder if God has ever had to say to us, hey, look at me. I don't want your attention bouncing all over the place looking for something to make your life better. Look at me. Look right here. That's what we do. I wonder if you and I have been looking all over the place for something that we think is going to save us, for somebody that is going to give us something that is going to change our life, for somebody that is going to give you a coin of temporary joy. I wonder if that's us. I wonder if we've ever been too busy with our eyes looking around an entire crowded life that, that God has to get our attention by sternly saying, look at me. To this guy, Peter and John, they just look like guys. There's people coming into the temple all the time. He's probably seen them before, but they're not one of the regulars. Here he comes, here they come. Nothing would have drawn his attention to them except... The idea that he thought, okay, maybe those guys will give me some money. They look like ordinary men. I wonder again, if we ever relegate God to looking just like regular men. I wonder if we ever look at God as just another way. If we're glancing at YouTube, if we're searching for hope on Google, if it's our favorite Christian radio station, if it's some new philosophy, I wonder if we ever put God in that category of everything. Let me tell you, God is not in the category of everything. God and YouTube are so much different, amen? I think it's fascinating that this beggar asks Peter and John for money. He asks them for spare change. This beggar was asking for the one thing that he knew could make his life a little bit better. 
He was asking for something that he was familiar with. If he could hear the coins clinking in his cup, at the bottom of his cup, he would be happy enough for now. This temporary, unfulfilling, momentary happiness was enough. I want you to see what Peter and John tell them. This is the first thing that they say. First, it's, look at us. And then the second thing they say, this is uh, Acts chapter 3, verse number 6. I'm only going to read part of it. And then Peter said, we don't have any silver or gold for you. Wow. What a disappointment. You just got my attention. I took my eyes off of everyone else here. And you... you you say, look at us. I look at you. You know what I want. I've got a cup here. And the first thing you say is, I don't have any money for you. I got nothing. That's disappointing. Because that's the only thing that, that, that I need. That's what I want. And they don't have it. They don't have what it takes. Sitting, what a waste of time. In 2011... I had a really good government job. It was a good government job too. Matching benefits, great insurance, a great retirement plan, every other Friday off, my own parking spot, a nice cushy chair, good job. It was the most secure job that I have ever had. I had to wear a shirt and I had to wear a tie and go in with this professional game face every day. You know what? I hated it. I hated it. I couldn't stand it. As a matter of fact, I was a few months away from falling into one of the deepest depressions that I have ever fallen into. And in my mind, I knew, I knew how to keep that from coming. I knew how to change my situation. And that was to get out of this job that I hate. It wasn't just my work that was being brought down because of this. It was all aspects of my life. My home life, my father responsibilities, my faith life, everything was being brought down. Every night I would get home and I would go on the computer and I'd spend hours just searching the want ads and, and, and just praying that the phone would ring from one of these applications that I put out there. And one day it did. Took that call, took that interview. It's a medical office. It's closer to home. It's different. The pay is about the same. The drive is shorter. This is the change that I need. This was literally going to change my life. Put in my two-week notice, went to my exit interview, took two paid days off before I started my new job, and I show up to work the very first day in my shirt and tie with my new assigned parking spot, with my new big fluffy chair, looking out, well, it's not even a window. I had a picture of a window to look out here. Within a few months, I was coming home literally crying. I had assigned a solution to my problem, and that wasn't the solution. I had assigned that. The man on the ground literally wiping dirt out of his teeth. He only asked one 
thing of the people that came by. He only asked for that one thing that he knew he thought would solve his problem. We seem to do that. We tell ourselves that things will be better if, and then we fill in the blank, right? Things will be better when, and then we fill in the blank. We know what change needs to happen to make things better, but we seem to always stop short, and we seem to always stop smaller than God actually wants to provide for us. Amen? <clears throat> Come back with me and see what John and Peter say to this man in Acts 3, verse number 6. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of the Nazarene, get up and walk. Get up and walk. I'm going to stop there again for a moment. This man is so focused on begging a handful of coins off of total strangers that he never even thought to ask for healing. Never thought to ask of that. Because that coin in his cup was more valuable at that moment. That was more valuable than the ability to walk because he didn't think that was possible. He wanted the one thing that he assigned to his own happiness. Acts chapter 3 verse 7, it says this, Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. As he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, he stood on his feet, and he began to walk. And then walking, and then leaping, and then praising God, he went into the temple with him. This man has been in the dirt his entire life, and now he can do this. He's never done that before. Never has done that before. I love that Luke is so specific. Luke grabs him by the right hand and helps him up. He has never been helped up in 40 years. His entire life, no one has ever grabbed him by the hand and helped him. Maybe somebody has to say, okay, let's see if you can walk this time. No, nope. <laughs> no, that's never happened before to where he's actually been up. Yes, I can do this. Look what I can do. This stranger said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and it actually is working. What kind of joy do you think is going through his mind right now? Do you think that now he can see John and Peter as apostles because of a miracle? Yeah, he knows who they are. He knows exactly who they are. No one's ever lifted him before. And his ankles and his feet heal instantly. Now, I don't know if, if his feet hurt. I don't know if they did or not. But we do know uh, the writer of Acts is Luke, and Luke is a physician. And we do know that this guy, he, the, the bones in his ankles aren't lined up properly for him to be able to walk. That's just, it's... It has never happened. If you're a parent, you know how long it takes to teach a toddler how to walk, right? 12 months, 18 months, something like that. This guy's 40 years old, and he learns to walk, boom, like that. Only God can do that, amen? amen. 30 seconds ago, 
the legs of this man were absolutely worthless. And God blessed him in a way that he couldn't even imagine. He showed up that day to ask for some coins and God gave him legs and the ability to walk. And he wasn't even asking for it. He wasn't even asking for it because he didn't think it was possible. Verse number eight, he says he jumped up, stood on his feet, and he began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. Isn't that amazing? What's the first thing that he does? He starts jumping up and down and praising God right away. All the people saw him walking, and they heard him praising God, which means that must have been loud because there's a lot of people at the temple this day. They saw him, they heard him, and they realized that he was, he was the lame beggar that they had so often seen at the beautiful gate. And they were absolutely astounded. And they all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade. This is, it's, it's like a patio, kind of a porch area where people would gather, okay? And that's where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. I love the fact that Luke records that the first place that this man goes with his new feet is church. That's where he goes. Now, if you just got new feet, if you just got a new car, you might want to go show that new car off to your friends, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to go show this off. Look at my wheels. Check this out. He could have gone home. He could have found those guys that carried him there that morning and said, hey, uh, yeah, that cot, yeah, burn it. Don't need it. Uh-uh. He's not going out to tell others. He's going into church to thank God. He sees... He starts to see people. I know that guy. He gave me some coins on Thursday. I, I, I recognize that face because he won't even look at me. I recognize that guy. Yeah, he always tries to hide behind others in the crowd. I don't even look at him anymore because he always tells me no. Here's the thing. This man has never seen people at eye level before. He's never been five feet in the air before. For the first time, he's looking at faces, straight into faces, and he recognizes people, and they recognize him. You think the beggars in our life don't recognize us? They're going to recognize us, right? I wonder if, I wonder if the guy who's always out there at the intersect, he, he's at the off-ramp at Alessandro at the 215. I wonder if we would recognize him if he walked in today. I wonder if we would. I don't want you to feel guilty if you wouldn't. But I wonder if we would. The people inside the temple gates, they not only recognized him, but they were astounded that this man who they have seen every day with a face full of dirt, is now on his feet and he is walking. And verse number 11, it tells us that <clears throat> the man held tightly to Peter and John. That probably makes sense. Um, he might kind of know how to walk, but let's face it, if you're 40, you're learning how to walk for the first time, you'll be like, hey, um, John's like, okay, under my shoulder here, and Peter's like this, and kind of... Having a little bit of help is great. You know what, though? He found Peter and John. What he found was safety. He found a couple of guys that 
We're going to help him. He found a safe place. Now, not outside the temple, but a safe place inside the temple with the men who came and brought him the message and the hope and the power of Jesus Christ and gave him his legs back. He found a safe home in Christ. That's what happens when Jesus comes into your life. Your life is forever changed by a miracle. Let's call a spade a spade. It is a miracle that Christ changes our life, our hearts, for one that deserves eternal damnation to one that is going to live forever in the, with the streets of gold and the clouds with Jesus Christ our Savior. That is a miracle. Amen? Amen. This man was physically changed and people noticed. How can you not notice a beggar who you've seen for years? How can you not notice a miracle? How can you not notice a miracle in somebody else's life? Now, here's a cool thing. Now there is a crowd around him. People are coming. There's, wow. You can only imagine. They're like, hey, jump. Let me see you jump. Dude, that's cool. Let me see you walk over there. Can you moonwalk? Can you, can you like, let me, let me, okay, you're going to need a little bit more practice on that. This was not a hidden miracle. Everyone saw this. It was very public. It was a miracle that was done. This is the reason why it was done. It was done so that people would see the power and the authority that Jesus had given the apostles. And a lot of people saw it. And Peter and John, now they've got some explaining to do. How'd you do that? What happened? We've seen this guy. Not only do we see him walking, now we have questions. Who did this? Is this demonic? See, when God does miracles, people want to know how. People want to know how the doctor said that she would not walk again, and she is. The doctor said she'd never come home from the hospital, and she did 13 years ago. People want to know how when God does miracles. When God does miracles in your life, I'm going to ask you this this morning. I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. Do not let them go silent. People want to know how. You know how? It's all because of Jesus. Answered prayers are miracles. Are we telling other people about this? Here's the thing. This opportunity that is now right in front of the apostles. I told you we're going to be in this scripture for a few weeks, right? Because we're going to see what happens next. But what we have is a miracle, two apostles that have to explain how it happened. But the amazing thing is, is there is a group of people now wanting answers. They want to know. They are giving the apostles an opportunity to talk and to tell them exactly what happened. Remember we talked a couple of weeks ago. When God moves into your life, people notice and it's an opportunity. Here is an opportunity if you're a believer in Christ, you know what happened. You know 
what happened in your life in the name of Jesus Christ. And when people ask you what happened, we need to be ready with an answer. We're going to see next time how Peter and John were ready with an answer. People noticed this miracle. Peter and John didn't perform. It's, it's not something that, that they... Christ gave them the power. They performed this miracle in a very public fashion so that people could see who they were, where the power came from. You and I might not be able to heal people ourselves. That's not the power and the gift that we were given. But we were given the power and the gift to pray, to ask others to pray, and to tell others, look what God did, let me tell you how. It's because of Jesus. It creates an opportunity for us to tell others. We're going to see soon exactly what Peter tells others. We saw a couple of weeks ago Peter preaching. We're going to see his second sermon. He just preached to 3,000 people who came as Christians. Now he's going to preach to the Jewish people who came into the temple. Talk about a difference in a crowd. But he still sees an opportunity when people are in wonder. Let me leave you with this. Are we asking God for something smaller than he can provide? Are we only asking God for something that we know is going to bring us happiness enough? Is God willing to provide for us something bigger than we can even imagine? but we're not even opening our minds to what He can do. He can give a man 40 years lame in the dirt his legs back. What is it? What is it that we're asking for and we're telling God how to solve it? Are we asking for coins in a cup? when he has legs and salvation for us? Are we asking too small? There's nothing wrong with asking big. And knowing that God can even do something bigger than that. I know you don't have any points on the back of your bulletin this morning. Things have been so chaotic the last 24 hours that I said, I'm gonna come up here and tell you a story and preach. Here's your point. Stop asking God for the small stuff. It's okay to know that God can do more than whatever it is you're asking for. Here's the second point. When God answers prayer, when God performs a miracle, make sure others know about it and use that opportunity to tell other people about Jesus. This is why this happened. It's because of Jesus. This is what I was asking for. And this is what God did. It's because of Jesus. That's our job. Ask big. Let God do big things. 
tell others, rejoice, thank God, celebrate, use the opportunity to tell others about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.